Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name is Henry Quinney and today I'm joined by Mike Kazimer. Now, I thought we'd do this kind of light-hearted, fun series called Getting to Know. Now, if you're on the website regularly, you will know that we've run this set of interviews before in the written form for racers and people in the industry. However, I thought it's about time we got to know some of the Pink Bike staff and also it would give people an opportunity to appear on a podcast where I promise to shut up for at least five seconds. Mike Hazemer. So start off by telling people what you do at Pink Bike. Okay. Well, I am the managing tech editor. So basically I review and write about bikes and products and all that. And I also make sure that other people review and write about products and get their work done. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, is it, you know, self-assessment assessment time. It feels a bit like a parent's evening. Are we, are we okay to manage or are you sometimes pulling out your hair? No, you're all good to manage. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, everyone that works for Pink Bike or most of everyone that I deal with loves bikes and I think that makes it easier. So it's not like a, like everyone wants to be here most of the time. So I think that makes it easier than if you're in some kind of like, you know, gnarly corporate cubicle world where no one really wanted to be there. That'd be a lot harder. So I think, yeah, yes, people, true. people are genuinely passionate about bikes. And so that kind of makes this job a lot easier as far as managing goes. And did you always know you were going to work in bikes? Did you have a, was bikes the backup plan or was something else the backup plan if bikes didn't come through? Um, no, yeah. Bikes were kind of always the plan. Like ever since I started, I mean, I started riding when I was like 12 years old and was fully addicted from that moment on. And then, um, yeah, bikes was the plan. I wasn't sure what regard I would end up in. Like I worked in shops and I'm sure we'll get into all that, but, um, yeah, bikes or some sort of outdoor industry job is always, always the plan ever since I was a little kid. And important question i want to ask everyone this question why didn't you make it as a pro because they say that the good bicycle riders race them and the ones that can't do it go and review them (laughs) yeah i mean i I think it's accurate like in terms of like very very good um i think because i wasn't fast enough and that's kind of why you don't make it as a pro but i kind of realized pretty early did you try yeah i tried not super hard like i tried i raced cross country in high school and tried as hard as i could then and i think i started to realize towards the you know, maybe like my senior year in high school, it's like, I'm not going to be a world cup racer. That's just not a thing, you know, it's expert level or whatever. And I was kind of like, all right, well, I'm just going to ride. Um, so yeah, I don't think my, my dreams of being a pro were ever super high. Like I kind of wanted to. And then after a certain point I realized like, oh no, I, I'm not, I'm just not going to be a pro. So yeah. Yeah. And so starting off, you grew up out East, which I just know is this whole, it's basically like this other world to me out East. I don't know what that really Yeah. Means. It's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I grew up in Connecticut. Well, <laughs> I only found out recently that the Midwest was in the middle, but it wasn't the West. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Geography is a little different in, in America. But <laughs> yeah, it completely messed up my head. Anyway, so grew up out East. What was, did you get introduced to mountain bikes by someone or was it just like a thing you heard about and you had to give a go? Yeah, it was kind of kind of like that. Like basically somehow I stumbled on, a, I think it was Mountain Bike Magazine on the newsstand, picked it up and mountain biking. I did have a couple of buddies in, I guess it was middle school that I'd, mentioned mountain biking and i got this magazine and just read it and it was i think it was like a buyer's guide and i just got obsessed there's something about it just it's like i like the idea of mountain biking i didn't really know what it was but it seemed cool like riding out in the woods and i don't i didn't even know like yeah i didn't i just had the the vague concept of you could just take your bike and ride like over anything out in the woods so then i got started and did you because you've got a couple of siblings did any of them ride or was it just no like- well i think that's probably what got me into riding because i'm the oldest of seven kids so I think when you're, oh, yeah. when there's that many kids at home, you want to get out of the house and maybe as far as possible. So I think that finding bikes was like that, you know, it's almost cheesy, but it's like that freedom. You're like, oh, I can just take off now. And my parents, cause there's so many kids, they didn't really care where I was. So I could just go <laughs> out for hours. Like I was 12 years old, like so far away from home, but 
it didn't no one really noticed so it was great history kind of repeats itself because don't you manage six of us and you were the oldest of seven yeah i feel like I mean, some, probably yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah just going around telling people to stop picking their nose and you're like oh my god it's like i'm still there yeah exactly so um but yeah none of them really ride i've got a brother or two brothers now that they sort of ride but nothing um no one's kind of as into it i'd say as i am and what what you know what what fascinated you about riding was it the descending aspect i mean you mentioned you did some cross country or was it the fact that cross country was the only real thing to do both back then and maybe in the in the location yeah it was kind of i think at the time i didn't have the i didn't really know as much about downhill I, there was buddies at the shop that like, eventually i started working at a shop but um so i had friends that raced downhill but to me at that time it seemed too crazy to me i didn't really it was like oh this is like what the crazy guys do i want to be cross country so i wanted to like cover ground and go fast and um, I think that just kind of was more of what the scene was like then. There's a super strong cross-country race scene in Connecticut and generally New England in this time. This, we're talking about like the the late 90s um, at this point. So there's races every single weekend. And that was kind of what motivated me too. I liked the idea of racing. And it made a lot of sense in my head. Like starting a pack, go as fast as you can for a bunch of laps and, you know, fastest person wins type of thing. So that made sense. And so I think that's kind of what I initially was uh, was enamored by was cross-country racing. And were you, were you someone that was good from like a young age at going into the pain locker, kind of going quite deep or were you? Yeah. Um, Cause not everyone is good at it. Yeah. Some people are just really good at riding bikes more than they are. I was good. Yeah. I would say I was good at it, especially not as, not as much at the, uh, like overall speed, but like longer, uh, like suffering. Just, I started doing endurance events. Like when I was 16, I did a 24 hour race and this is at a time no when not too many people were doing 24 hour races. Like I did a solo one. Um, and like, it was only a couple of years before I did that, that John Stamstead had, they didn't used to let you race 24 hour races solo because they thought it was too dangerous. So John Stamstead bought four entries to a race and then he did it just by himself just to kind of prove like, Hey, why this should be a solo <laughs> category. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like not to toot my own horn, but I guess that's what this podcast is almost for. But I think I was probably one yeah. of the youngest people ever to do a solo 24 hour race um, mm. just because they didn't really exist until around this time, like yes. 98, 99 ish somewhere. So, um, so yeah, I was kind of a weird little kid. Like I liked just, that sort of suffering and longer distance stuff um yeah it sounds like you're almost insinuating that endurance cycling existed before everesting and i'm not sure it did <laughs> right yeah i know imagine that <laughs> yeah we're up there yeah so uh, oh man I've, i'm just cringing from my, my own little world <laughs> yeah no so i was definitely doing some like longer rides and stuff as a kid um even when i first like one of my first long rides i was i think i was 12 or 13 and I heard about this ride. It was called the two ferry metric. It was a road ride and it was basically a metric century. So, you know, 62 miles, hundred, hundred K. Um, and I just liked the concept of it because it crossed the river and you had to take a ferry across the river one way and take a ferry across the other way. In my mind, I'm like, this will be great. I'll just put slick tires on my road bike. And sorry, not my road bike. I'll put slick tires on my mountain bike. Cause that's all I had was like a, I had a diamondback Topanga from Dick sporting goods. I think it was like $400 spent all my paper money on it. Um, but so anyways, you know, I thought I'd put some slick tires on it, do this ride. And I did this ride, but because everyone else had road bikes, obviously it was a road bike ride. I was so slow. Like I was off the back. I don't even know how many hours I was out there for. And just like, I remember like kind of falling asleep by the side of the road, getting back on my bike and going. And like, I thought it was great, but I don't even know how I decided this was a good idea. And this is before cell phones and stuff. So it's like, my parents just dropped me off and I don't know how they knew when to pick me up. Like, how do you tell them how many hours later? So yeah, so from pretty early on, I was just out like riding uh, a lot by myself, just like long, weird rides and kind of. Uh, we've spoken before on the podcast about your 
your paper boy days. How long did you do that paper round for? And did all the money go towards bikes or was there other kind of interest bubbling away? Um, the Yeah, I did the paper routes from, let's see, fourth grade till 12th grade, so eight years. Um, and that was just to have money for college mostly. But then obviously some went to bikes too. Um, and I started working a bike shop around like towards the middle of high school. So when I was I know, 16 or so, and that was again, just to get more, you know, get cheaper bike parts basically. But yeah, so basically, yeah, yeah. So the paper route, and I had other jobs too. But yeah, I was trying to just save money for college and for bike stuff. And when when you got to college, you went to Colorado, Colorado. Yeah, I went out to Colorado. So I graduated. Yeah, yeah graduated high school, and then went to college. Um, again, basically, the way I picked a college is I looked at a map of the U.S. and then tried to find ski areas that were as close to colleges as possible, or maybe the other way, colleges as close to ski areas as possible. Because really, skiing was like mountain bike and skiing have always been my two things, and then. As far as where to go to school, I really wanted to go somewhere else to ski. And, and when you're on the East Coast, Colorado is like this magical place that you need to go to. So why did you end up pursuing the mountain biking thing in terms of industry and not the skiing thing? Well, I kind of did both for a bit as far as like, not necessarily industry, but like I always used to work at bike shops in the summertime and ski shops in the wintertime. And I did that for about eight years, just kind of split it up. Um, and so I guess it just kind of ended up mountain biking ended up being the path that I went with, I guess. Do you think if you'd been presented with an opportunity to go into the, the skiing world, rubbing candles on polished bits of wood would have been would have been enough for you? Yeah, for sure. I would have done something like that too. I mean, this this role in the ski world exists as well. Like there are, you know, ski reviewers and testers and things. And I think I'd I would enjoy that as well. But um just where I ended up here in, in Bellingham in Washington, it's kind of mountain biking's it's nice. Mountain biking's nice because you can just do it every day easily without needing to drive and the, the accessibility. So I think that kind of makes the job a little easier as far as testing stuff goes. And and speaking of testing, you know, we'll kind of go back into it a bit, but testing skis must is way was surely way easier because you can take the top sheets off. Mountain biking, we can see everything all the time. We're so aware, right? We can't get away from how obvious certain aspects of a mountain bike are. Yeah, and I think testing. I mean, testing skis is probably hard because well, hard and easy because you can do a bunch of runs back to back. But sometimes the similarities are going to be so similar that it's hard to like separate things where bikes tend to be a little more different and there's more just more stuff to talk about with a bike just simply because of you know simplicity moving parts and that type of stuff but yeah you basically talk about um how it needs bigger brakes and a longer dropper yeah i mean <laughs> going through going through those years of because when did when did so when did you join pink bike you joined pink bike when you were how old um let's see well i was i was 11 years ago so i was about i was 30 yeah i turned 30, 30. yeah and in that time, I mean, bikes have got a bit better, but how do you feel about reviewing them now? Do you think that like it's becoming, like, when when one bike had a 66 degree head angle and one bike had a 68 degree head angle, but they were still like technically targeted at the same point, it must've been a lot easier, must've been a lot lot richer resource to go into, right? Just part of you kind of wish there was still more of a divergence in design? Yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like I was kind of lucky to start this gig when I did because I was able to go from, you know, when I started, it makes it it's weird because it makes it seem like i've been doing this forever and ever like obviously 11 years is a while but it's not that long in the grand scheme of things but in the last 10 years we've seen a massive massive change so when i first started we were reviewing 26 inch bikes and then the 27.5 bikes started coming and then 29 started you know 29 had been around the whole time but then 29 became like a value, viable option so it's been kind of cool in the last decade just to have gone through all the the wheel size changes even though i mean at the end of the day, they're just wheels and who cares, but it is pretty interesting because there were more drastic. Has, I know the big, the big wheel <laughs> brands, you know, we yeah. just keep the industry afloat. Yeah, exactly. 31.5's coming. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think these days, yeah, it's interesting to see the geometry changes 
start to slow a bit. And I'm kind of curious to where things go. I mean, I think that, you know, now I have e-bikes and electronics and that type of stuff coming in to sort of, um, be where some of the focus is, but I think, yeah, I'm really curious to see what happens next. You know, if there is some sort of larger change, like we saw the last decade. If you had to put your money on something being a new focal point for good or for bad, whether it makes a difference or not, what do you think the next focal point of both design and let's face it, the, the accoutrements of marketing that go with that? What, what, what do you think it could be? It's hard to say. I mean, unfortunately, at least for me, like I'm not super into electronics of any kind, but I do think we are going to see that just still becoming the focus for the next, next few years for sure. You know, whether that's some sort of, um, you know, electronic suspension. I know Fox, we've showed their stuff before that they're working on. So they, I know they have the new, I assume yes. it's kind of a new version of live valve, something like that. Um, you know, flight attendant RockShox has that, and, you know, Scherter's on an XC version of flight attendant. So I think companies, suspension companies are still pursuing electronics, you know, obviously in shifting, we've got SRAM's axis stuff and Shimano still hasn't responded really. Um, so yeah, I think more electronics, more batteries. And I think e-bikes too are going to, you know, the hype e-bikes are getting big yeah and i think the hype of that luckily it seems to have tapered a bit like i think there's still a place for e-bikes and they're fine and i ride them and i review them and all that but i think that i the idea that they're just going to replace everything seems to have subsided a bit which is good i i want i want that idea to subside like when people initially when they came out people were like oh you're going to ride an e-bike and never want to ride a regular bike again and that kind of always got under my skin and i think that was some of my that fueled some of my initial ambivalence or even hatred to e-bikes at the time because like no don't take away my regular bikes because this is what i really love um but now after having ridden them and had them for a long time and stuff it's they're just another like another tool in the drawer or another another thing like yeah i've got one on test at the moment which is not like this is my first ever time i've really had an e-bike and i find it's i've struggled to find the interest to go and ride it um not that i'm saying that it never has a place or that it's not a good bike or anything like that but just when i've got a couple of hours i think oh i'd love to go do a big ride on my mountain bike or take the downhill bike to the park and when i've got an hour i'm like well i want to make that hour count in terms of fitness i want to feel something like an element of fatigue you know um but did you ever have the existential because i think a lot of people i mean when i say a lot of people me (laughs) i do have like an existential dread about e-bikes coming over and them getting lighter and lighter and I think the cross-country bike will still be there. I think that maybe the downhill bike will still be there. But it's the mid-travel bike that I worry about, the 150, 160-mil bike. Can yeah. you, do you think that Do you think that the, the, um, the non-motorized bike will stick around in that category? I mean, I like to think so. I think the analogy I've used before is the fact that like, people still run, like running. You know, that we have cars, we have lots of motorized vehicles, and plenty of people are still running as a sport and as an activity. True. And they still, yep. there's plenty of sneakers being sold. So... I don't see them as going away and, and the price too, like no matter what people still need to be able to afford this sport, even though it's obviously, uh, the barrier of entry is pretty high no matter what. And then e-bikes are even higher priced. So I think that somebody, like companies will still have to make bikes that people can afford at some level, I would assume and hope. And so. so think about bikes that people can afford, you know, you grew up, I mean, I think we both sort of did, like we always bought our own bikes, et cetera, et cetera. We worked in shops. I worked in shops also predominantly, you basically got the discount you got a terrible hourly wage, but your discount and money you spent on bikes kind of helped helped level the playing field a bit. Yeah, exactly. Do you think bikes have got more unaffordable? Do you think that they? Do you, I mean, how do you feel about that? Because sometimes it's, I think, and I think it's good to hope, to keep us honest. 
but there's a suggestion that we're up in our ivory tower and actually bikes are really, really, really expensive and something has to be done, which is fair enough. I'm not discounting that or saying it's right and wrong. But what was what's your been your experience with it yeah. over this ten years at Pink Bike? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's hard to say. Like, there's always been bikes have always been expensive, and yeah, you're right. I think with people, what you know, people like us that really get into it end up in shops or in the industry in order just to afford the sport, which is kind of wild because yeah, if you otherwise you'd have to get a pretty well paying job just to be able to do this activity, which is you know it's unfortunate, but I think that's kind of how it is to a certain extent. Um, but I think that at this time, like we just wrapped up the value field test. And so I think what you can get now for your money is as good as it's ever been. It's better, you know, for right now, I think you can get like that YT capper for $2,000, which is still uh, a large amount of money for lots of people and myself included, but that bike that you're getting is so much better than what you would get a few years ago. Um, so, so yeah, I think bikes, what you're getting, like the technology has trickled down to a point where you go in, if you bought the most entry-level bike, you're still probably getting a dropper post. You're getting suspension that works reasonably well, brakes that work reasonably well. Um, so I think that the level of technology you're getting, even as a beginner, is, is so much higher than it's ever been. I mean, I think you're totally right. But going back, I mean, I, I think we always say that budget bikes have never been so good. And actually 10 years ago compared to the bikes that you'd ride then and pay a lot of money for and consider the the latest greatest thing actually you know we had this value bike field test and you know, that status for instance you know it's got some quirks in its geometry it's definitely aligned towards a certain kind of riding but it is pretty outrageous what it can do um going back casting our eye back though back to when you start first started at pink bike what was pink bike then what did it feel like I don't know, you know, it sounds like a bit of an overindulgence as harking on ourselves, but I think probably people are quite interested because, you know, especially in the time that I've been here this last couple of years, obviously a lot has changed and it's gone from being sort of independently owned. Now we're part of this outside group. But what was it like, you know, what was your first day? What was your interview like? Yeah, well, the interview uh, was very informal. It took place at a, a Tim Hortons, as it would, you know, as oh, you classic. expect. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so that was with... Uh, that was with Carl, the owner at the time, and they were one of the owners at the time, and then Mike Levy, and they just were both there. Um, and they just kind of asked me like four questions, and it was super, the most informal interview I've ever had. Just kind of like, basically like, you like bikes? Can you write words? Okay, maybe we'll see you sometime. <laughs> and then that was kind of it. Um, and at the time it was being run in, um, out of an office in Chilliwack, BC, just like a, that's pretty, kind of a, a town that isn't really known for its mountain biking. It's got good mountain biking, but it's kind of more of a just like a medium sized town. So it was in a little warehouse there basically. And so there weren't very many employees. I don't, I mean, there's probably at that time, I don't even know at the time, maybe 10 people probably they just, and basically it was just like, yeah, it was small, a lot smaller operation. Um, but we, there's always just a drive to kind of do as good a job as we could. And we definitely worked super hard, shared hotel rooms, like basically sharing beds basically and traveling and yeah. doing all the stuff it takes to make a mountain bike website work but it was definitely uh not like a struggle but like we were fighting to like gain gain recognition i guess and kind of improve what pink bike was because pink bike started out as a basically like a message board almost you know or forums basically so place people can kind of share their photos and share their videos and stuff and it had a good it's always had a good community of people of riders that it's built around and then um you know the last 10 years kind of grew it more into like you know, better better reviews better race coverage just kind of better everything as as well as we could so, yeah and in terms of the way it's perceived by the audience now i think that it is quite big i think that lots of people have lots of different things about it which is good I and mean, i think it's super cool that we work for a company that actually people feel strongly about one way or another 
you know, I didn't, it's, it's all good. Um, do you think that that's sort of changed? Do you think it's maybe pink bikes become more serious over the years, less serious? You know, what, what was, what was your, how does now working at pink bike compare to when it first started? Was it quite a, a culture shock in some ways when you first started the Tim Hortons interview and the this, that, and the other? I mean, that was kind of, that kind of fit in with what I was hoping because I've never really, I've had like <laughs> one sort of real job, like an office job for one year in my whole life. So, um, it was kind of nice to be knowing that I'd be going into another job that wasn't quite like, I'm just not cut out for going into an office and sitting in a cubicle all day. I just don't think I could ever do that again. Um, so it was nice. It was informal and obviously like working from home is always nice and the remote work and that's, um, yeah. So I guess I like, get yeah, back to your question though, as far as like how pink bikes change. Yeah. So nowadays I'd say it's more organized. We definitely have some more meetings and things, but I think at the core, it's still the same, which is why I'm still here. Like we still just get to try out bikes technology you know hopefully inform people and um yeah it's just kind of a bunch of people that are all passionate about mountain biking itself so i think that makes it just makes it easier to deal with some of the little more mundane tasks that kind of come on when when a role yeah. changes or you know as a company grows well that's what i thought was sort of because when the outside thing the outside you know purchase whatever you want to call it happened i actually looked at it in the way that i thought yeah it's super cool that our audience actually gives a shit do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. About the identity of the brand. Yeah. I thought that was like, that's what I took from it. Like, oh, wow. Like, this isn't to be, um, I don't know. I think we have quite like a, um, we're quite, uh, would it be the word be irreverent, irreverential? Yeah. You know, in, in quite like a healthy way. I mm -hmm. think that like, it, it, it's all good. But I thought, I don't know, that was kind of like the fact that people really gave a shit. I thought it was actually pretty cool. Yeah. And I think at this point, there's a lot of people that have been on Pink Bike for, you know, almost 20 years, if not longer. So there's definitely people that are, invested some serious hours and just kind of you know commenting or taking part and i think that that's one thing and that was one of the fears i think people thought that the comment section could possibly go away or something like that and um for better or for worse it's always been around and you know it's <laughs> and I, I do like it to a certain extent you know sometimes obviously like comments get under your skin and that's something you kind of have to learn to deal with and that was something initially that i had to learn to deal with right away just because it, yeah it's just well you're quite a even killed person mm -hmm. i mean i i, I I guess I've, I learned, I mean, at least dude, at least you know what you were doing. When I started doing that, when I started for GMBN, I had no idea what I was doing. Right. I'm still learning now, Yeah. but I was, I was real bad <laughs> yeah. and um, people let me know. Um, what's your relationship been like with the comments in the community? Yeah, I think kind of neutral, you know, you try to get in there and chime in when it makes sense to kind of help clarify. And I think that's a lot of it. Sometimes you just see comments and the people just, you know, the commenter just has a, a legit question, which I appreciate the most if somebody tries to ask a question and hoping they get a response. I'd rather that than people just kind of spouting at you or telling you why you're wrong without any, any room mm. for a conversation because the, or when people just really try to tear your stuff apart for no reason, which I get it. Like there, there's an element of jealousy and obviously like from the outside, our, our jobs look amazing and dreamy and just like, um, like perfect. And so there is an element of, of jealousy. I think that can make people be pretty negative and Maybe. bitter towards yeah. us once in a while. Um, but so yeah, I appreciate the, I can take negative feedback, like no problem. As long as it's not as like, as long as it's not malicious, basically, like, I don't have time yeah. for the malicious and just people that are trying to just like put you down for no reason, just like bullies. Like I'm not going to get bullied on the internet. Um, because it is just the internet. I can just go outside and it's the real world. Like it's, but it's, it definitely takes time to like figure that out. And I'm sure that like mentally it's not probably as health that healthy for you to like be this, like to be on the internet this time as much. It's just kind of a, a sort of a gnarly world sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, we're humans, I think um, so much has changed and even in the last couple of hundred years, maybe since sort of, 
I don't know, without getting, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. So it's important to that, that acknowledgement. But I think even the way the, the populations are housed and dispersed has changed massively since like the industrial revolution and humans, you know, for the large part of our existence, didn't live in, didn't live in towns, a small town being someone like Squamish is 20,000 people. You know, this is, it's a, it's a very big departure. And also I think in terms of how much opinion we have to consider. I sometimes think, don't think our brains are necessarily hardwired for it. Yeah, the amount you know? of information. Yeah, the amount, like, the amount you can put in your brain in a given day is pretty wild. Like, you know, you could just, even if you just went to Wikipedia and read all day, it's just so much stuff crammed in compared to what it would have been like, you know, in the past. So yeah, so kind of dealing with that has been one of the, the challenges, I guess. Yeah. And sometimes though, the comments that suck the most are the ones that, yes, that, I mean, I think you're right. I think sometimes people have a bad day and they just, get on the internet and then they see in my case some guy doing a how-to video and they think he probably doesn't know what he's talking about and they probably you know give me some shit and that, that's how mm-hmm. it was but the the comments that often hurt the most are the ones that are actually true right mm-hmm. like, oh shit oh god you're right oh and you know and you've got to take that and you cop it and yeah exactly. there's only been over your 10 years at pink bike have there only been things where you, th- you look back now and you thought oh really wish we'd done that a bit differently or actually that review hasn't stood to the test of time. I mean, there were some, I know it's funny how things happen in the pink bike world and occasionally they, they breach over. I think there are one or two, like maybe like the polar breaking in, I think probably 2018, mm-hmm. there was um, uh, the envy wheel thing with, with Paul Aston mm-hmm. that I think maybe kind of got, got a bit of traction outside of pink bike. One or two other instances. Do you think there's anything that, anything like that that springs to mind that you think, well, actually, we got that right or we didn't or we'd do it all the same again yeah i mean i think that there's nothing like that comes up as right away of being like a a massive mistake like we've definitely made mistakes like myself included obviously like there's plenty of times but i don't think we've been necessarily on the wrong side of history too much like i mean you know i, I wrote op-ed opinion or yeah i wrote op-eds about how e-bikes are silly um so those don't stand up as well if you search for those you know i was definitely very anti-e-bike but it's also like things change and I think we're allowed to reevaluate our opinions and have new ones and, and those will keep changing too. So yeah, I don't think that I wouldn't really take anything back as far as like what I've written over the years. And I think most reviews should stand up, you know, hindsight's obviously 2020. So some stuff you'd be like, Oh, how could they ever think that? But that's looking at it through the lens yeah. of what there is today. But overall, I, I'd, I'd say I'm more like, like, yeah, more proud than anything of what we've been able to accomplish as far as like, you know, having opinions and, it's kind of cool to see the uh, pink bikes gain more respect over the years. Cause when it started, it did have almost a, it was just 12 year old kids over there. They don't know anything. And then I think now it's, it's <laughs> cause at a certain point it was, you know, it was most, a lot of teenagers and just kind of people, just a younger crowd, but I think it's kind of evolved and matured. So I think that, um, yeah, we've been able to get some points across and even like the early days, I remember when Levy and I would go to press camps, we would bring our own short stems. And I think Levy would bring a handlebar cause bikes were still coming with long stems and short handlebars no and things so you'd have to bring your own stuff because companies still weren't listening like hey we want shorter stems wider bars like dropper posts um but yeah why don't companies just as i mean i think i why do you think companies were so long to adapt or some companies were do you think that's because of a conservatism conservatism within sort of ideologically around bikes or do you think it was maybe the fact that more indicative and representative of the way the bicycle industry is structured which is that you book lead times a long way out designs often baked in you know yada 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 yeah i think some of it's probably that i mean in my mind i was always imagining some warehouse somewhere just full of 60 70 mil stems that they had to 
get rid of before bikes could get the 40 <laughs> mil stems, and, which probably happened to a certain extent. And, and a lot it would depend on the product manager at the time. You know, if someone has been riding a 60 mil or 70 mil stem for their whole life, they're going to be a little more resistant to change than someone that kind of comes in new and like, Hey, this is how things feel or they ride better this way. So, um, yeah, I think probably a mix of both, but I think I like to think that maybe in our own little way, we helped make some change by saying this bike would be better with this or, you know, so, um, do you yeah. think the grim donut actually changed things? No, I don't think it changed things. I mean, maybe it might've opened some people's eyes, but I think it was a good exercise in pushing things to a, to a limit and kind of showing, um, yeah, like what could be done. I, I bet it I would say, yeah, I don't know if it changed things, but it probably made people think a little more, which could change things in the long run. So I think it's good. Yeah, it's a good exercise. And hopefully we can kind of do some sort of next version of that and we can toss around ideas, things. And, and, you know, we obviously, so you get a bike brand, you get, say, let's call it, let's say it's specialized. And it's not like everyone that's specialized goes in and makes every bike and it's this huge community source thing. It's largely there's some designers there's some engineers and then there's the product manager which will be responsible for things like stem length and, and generally guiding the project in some ways you know as journalists we have a strange relationship with product managers because a lot of times it's like a, an act of collaboration you know we'll talk and we'll agree about a bike and we'll review it and they'll say oh thank you yeah we, we also noticed that we appreciate that you appreciate why we did it but sometimes it can be more adversarial and where they're like why have you done this do you think do you think you'd you'd be okay as a product manager or do you think you would like do you think you would have made five years ago do you think you'd be making good bikes or do you think you would have been head in the sand uh i like to think i'd be making good bikes just because of where i live i think that and like i think the trails and what the riding is like around where you are helps kind of dictate um bikes to a certain extent but do you think that that's representative of what most people ride for their mountain bikes like because we have ended up like bikes being ridden for the most extreme situations yada 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 and actually sometimes mountain biking is done all over the world, right? Yeah. But I think that's one of those, it's one of those kind of misconceptions that I, that almost bothers me sometimes where people think that bikes coming from the Pacific Northwest, they're just for gnarly trails and they can't be ridden anywhere else. And these companies have their blinders on and don't know, but then realistically, I'd rather have a bike that's a little too slack and ride on trails than a bike that's too steep. I think it makes it have more of a, a window of, of fun compared to a bike you know, that's going to feel sketchy if you get on steeper terrain, like you could ride a, um, I mean, take a, I try to think of a bike, like a specialized enduro is pretty slack, but you can still have fun on mellower trails, but then I don't know, my analogies aren't working right now, but either way, what I'm trying to say is I'd rather have a bike where companies made it maybe a little too slack rather than one where companies made it too steep just for the, the range of where it's going to feel good. But do you not also think there are elements where, I know, I think that I agree with in terms of the slackness thing. I agree in terms of reach and chainstay lengths which still need to be longer but do you think uh i think the thing that arguably brands maybe did get wrong some of them was on short travel bikes going too steep in the seat tube angle because if you don't have the the steep climbs it's actually uncomfortable in your wrists so that's which sounds like a really yeah yeah i think there was a couple there are definitely a couple of bikes that came out they might have they did go probably too steep but i think that that's kind of toned down a bit now and um yeah i think overall we're at a pretty good place it, it's funny. I just, I like, I was riding a cross country bike all of last week. And then yesterday I switched onto a, like an enduro bike and it was pretty dramatic. Like it felt so much more different than it usually does to me. Cause usually I switch bikes every couple of days and I'm always like rotating, but to be on one bike solely for seven days, like a, a full on XC ish bike and then hop on an enduro bike. It's like, Oh, this is different. You know, it was just kind this of is different. Was like, this yeah. is 10 pounds more. And this feels like a big slack thing when it didn't really feel that big and slack previously. It was kind of interesting. And in terms of, you know, 
thinking about preconceptions that people have around bikes, you know, um, and maybe the battle it was to get bikes that were slack as they are now. Let's face it, there was some resistance or maybe slow uptake within the, within the industry. But how do you feel about the audience reactions was? And is there, for instance, for me, and I, I don't want to, I want to give you an example. I always don't feel that calling for shorter rear ends is understanding the full context of our bikes or the way they've changed over the years. Like if we think people often think, you know, they want the 425 rear end off their Kona process, which was amazing. But that bike, say in a medium, had a reach of 440 or in a larger. So proportionally, if we think about the the total of its, of its total length, that chainstay short length was still representative of a larger amount to achieve balance. How do you think the uptake was for more progressive geometry? Do you think that actually the brands were getting it at the right pace, maybe to match the demand of the consumer? Yeah, I think it, I mean, it did take a while for some companies, but I think it was interesting too, because uh, it's it's also, it's one of those examples where the comment section is funny to watch because you saw there was a time when all of a sudden everybody decided their bikes were too short. So, um, you know, wherever that, wherever that started, I think Chris Porter over in the UK deserves some credit um, and some other companies kind of figured out too that bikes could be longer and slacker. Um, but then all of a sudden in the comment section, everybody was trying to stretch their bikes as much as they could, you know, upsizing by three sizes. And it was almost like a badge of honor. Like I'm five foot one and I'm riding an XXL. This is how bikes. And, then, <laughs> and that was a thing for a while where now it's kind of swung the other way. And now you have people being, you know, I'm six foot five and I'm riding a small because bikes have gotten too long. So I think you do see that pendulum effect of bikes go one direction, another. And I think it's kind of that hunt for the sweet spot where, and there's no denying, I would say bikes were too small for a point, um, you know, a point in time as, especially with the wheel size changing. I think companies were still trying to figure out geometry. I mean, you remember when 29ers first came out, they thought that head angles needed to be steeper because the bigger wheel made it slacker yeah. in a way. So you're, it's all about wheelbase and stuff. So I think it's still one of those things that people are just trying to figure out. Um, and obviously, you know, chain stays are going to be a, a hot topic these days, but it's also one thing I've noticed and learned is that you, people are really adaptable, myself included. Like I can ride a bike with short chain stays and be like, oh, that's fine. And I can ride one of the long ones and be, oh, that's fine. And so I don't think there's one, I, I don't, I definitely don't agree to the concept that like your reach needs to match your chain stay length and that's all there is. And that's the perfect bike. And that's what everybody should be on. Um, that's not a thing. <laughs> like it, that's just not uh, it. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> but there is room for definitely more experimentation. I, and I'm curious to get on some bikes with some even longer chain stays and try that out. But, um, yeah. So I think well, there's, let's, everyone's different too. Let's so think, that's why we need options. Let's think about your preference then. If we said, just if you tell people how tall you are and if you could build a dream bike what the reach chain stays seat tube and head tube angles would be for an enduro bike what you think is actually the the best the cream of the crop right now yeah um yeah so i'm five foot eleven like 180 centimeters and i'd probably i think for reach for me these days it's like 475 ish um to 480 that's kind of felt it's a little shorter than i probably would have said a couple years ago but again i think as bikes have gotten slacker they're, they're just they still feel the same but they're just getting a little bit longer so yeah we'll go like 475 ish reach um 63.5 head angle and chain stays probably in that 445 range um, could probably even go a little longer maybe 450 but i mean it, yeah guys that we're talking that sounds like a good bike yeah. well i mean i've had this before like i had the nuke proof mega was my personal bike almost four maybe five years ago and i did 450 chain stays and like at the time as a slack head angle nowadays it's probably not as slack but yeah I don't, i'm not opposed to long long chain stays um yeah i just cut you off there but in terms of the seat tube angle oh yeah seat tube angle somewhere like around 77 basically yeah. it might not be uh 
in vogue to to talk about the uh, top tube length, but I still do look at top tube length. So somewhere in like the 620 mil range for me seems like it works pretty good. Um, Man, it's crazy hey, how at some point with the geometry thing and everyone wanted to go to 480, 485 reach. And it was actually, I think, on the short travel bikes that they forgot that humans had to ride these things. Yeah, yeah. You, know? you have to be able to reach the handlebars like while you're sitting down. Yeah. Yeah. Wild, like, you know, remember that down country field test and some bikes, like a 650, 655 mm-hmm. effective top tube for a large, which just so, to give people context is really, 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 really big. Yeah, it's real <laughs> long. So, and that makes a difference in how a bike feels more than reach. Like, I mean, reach is one of those numbers where you can kind of, you can ride around a longer or shorter reach to more of an extent than because you're standing up above the bike. So it's almost more where your, your weight is positioned. But, um, yeah, if a top tube feels too long or if just a seating position feels too long, I just, it's not for me. I like a more upright position in general. Um, even like this, that XC bike I was talking about, it came with a 70 mil stem with a negative 10 rise. Um, and I, I just couldn't ride that. Like, so yeah, you just done the BC bike race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was no, yeah. There was it. There's Trans BC and BC bike race. You done the BC bike race. BC bike race, which is what travel. Well, explain the event if you could. Yeah. What how it how it played out, and also what bike you chose to do it on. Yeah, so the BC bike race. It's kind of had different versions over the years, but at the moment, it's a seven day stage race. So you have seven days of racing. It's more cross country oriented, but the trails tend to be on the rowdier side of cross country. So you're riding some stuff that might be. I mean, we're on some trails that have been used in enduro races in the past, but you still have plenty of. Um, you know, gravel road and smoother single track and that, but mixed with some kind of rowdier stuff. So bike choice is one of those semi-tricky things, but overall it's, it's a cross country race each day. Um, this year was basically like the amount of mileage invert wasn't super high. So we're looking at maybe 20 to 25 miles per race stage. And then about, let's say like 3000 to 4,000 vert uh, vertical feet each day. So essentially it was a two to three hour sprint. Like a, like a, like a mm-hmm. cross country race. You did seven days of cross country racing, basically. Um, and then I wrote, oh, I rode the uh, Orbea Oys. Um, it's a new bike, new, that bike just got updated for this year and I hadn't spent time on it. So I got one in, I rode it for one ride the day before I left and then rode it for the whole race. Nice. Standard. Yeah. And we, are you still quite competitive from your early days? Uh, it turns out that I am. Yeah. I haven't cross country. <laughs> this is probably my first cross country race since like. 2000 or something i may have done some little like locally things but nothing i can't even remember the last cross country race these days i typically do some enduro racing just for fun it's a little bit less stress and that type of thing but uh i had a great time it was so fun to kind of remember how to pass people and not be sad when you get past and be in a pack and all that so it was sweet and coming from a testing point of view do you think it's viable and do you think it makes sense that yeah i mean Apart from maybe Matt Beer getting the downhill bikes more often than not because he's absolutely the right person to do it. Do you think it makes sense that you and I, we're reviewing all these bikes from 100 mil travel, or these whatever it is, 120 mil travel, all the way through to 180 mil travel big enduro bikes? I mean, because I look at it like we're the, we're kind of your average Joes and we kind of, we know what we're doing and we're good, but we're, we can reflect the criticisms and concerns that a lot of people would have. Or do you think that the way we test bikes should be more specialist? And we should have an ex cross country racer doing the cross country bike, an ex enduro guy doing the enduro bikes. And how good do you have to be to ride these things effectively? Do you think? Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, I don't. Um, I think there's a mix. I think it's good to have when we can people that are kind of experts in their in their area. Like you said, Matt Beer is our perfect uh, downhill tester because his depth of knowledge and his speed is just still up there at pro level. Um, but I think for the other bikes, I think it kind of helps for us to come in as more of your your average ish rider. Um, 
you know, we obviously get to ride more. And I'd say that our overall skill levels are on a, a good level. So it kind of gives us a good range of things to pull from. But yeah, I don't think you need to be a ex World Cup racer to evaluate a cross country bike. And I think that for me, like when I do a review this bike, I'm going to be coming in it, into it as more of like a trail rider that wants to get an XC and kind of frame it in that way. Um, and I've ridden plenty of XC bikes, modern XC bikes in the past too. So I'll be able to compare, but, um, yeah, if you, I think that it's, it's interesting too. And, and for even this, like doing the BC bike race was a good way to kind of see what XC is like these days. And that was pretty interesting too. Like, um, I put for tire choice, even like I put some Maxxis forecasters on, cause I knew there'd be some kind of rowdy terrain and I wanted like a, a tire with enough tread on it. But to me, a forecaster is pretty low, low profile tire you know compared to what i usually ride but then i show up and then people aren't like maxis aspen races which are basically a road bike tire it's yeah. like a slick I'm like oh you're gonna ride that all right like i'm thinking over tired which is kind of a silly <laughs> thing where like forecaster you know it's like a two three forecaster looks when compared to like an ass guy or something like that's like a that's a cross-country tire but turns out it wasn't a cross-country tire um but but we all enjoy i think even maybe in matt's case like most of the riding that we do is on enduro and trail bikes mm-hmm. do you think that we're inherently biased towards that style of geometry because there are some cross country races, which probably think, you know, I, these, like, I want, I want something that's, you know, feels like a bit of a live wire and that's very light and very fast rolling. Then we come in and we talk about damping and kinematics and all this. And they're probably thinking, well, hold on. I'm not cared about comfort. I don't care about descending performance. I want something that goes really fast uphill. Yeah. Do you think that we, we, are kind of shuffled one way or the other yeah probably i mean i definitely probably look at a cross country bike even from a more gravity oriented perspective than than they're intended for but i think that it's i think we're at a spot where you can make cross country bikes be so capable like a full-on cross country bike these days has 120 mils of travel i mean that's it's a good amount of travel compared to what they used to be on um they have dropper posts and i think that it's i mean it's pretty amazing what you can do on a full xc bike like or, or xc ish you know like we'll use the down country term i think there is a spot for those kind of bikes <laughs> where it's like it basically means that you can go really fast on the climbs and then not feel super scared on the descents like it's not like you're gonna descend and you know hit huge hucks and jumps but you can actually feel confident and confident that you're gonna be able to like hold your line and not crash and i think that's kind of cool and that's sort of what this this race illustrated to me too like i the there was plenty of riders who were really strong on the climbs but then they kind of still didn't it was almost fit that stereotypical xc thing where they can climb but not descend and there were definitely a handful of riders probably more than a handful that were were struggling a bit on some of the descents where it'd be like oh if you just went maybe rode your trail bike a little bit more like went to the pump track your speed would be so much faster like your results would be that much better so um yeah Yeah. i um dude i remember again to that down country field test and i think the rocky mountain element got a lot of the plaudits i think it was just that bit slacker maybe mm-hmm. but it was for me it was that that top fuel that was just amazing it was so well damped yep and it felt it's funny because for so long we've used the term mini like there was the mini downhill bike and the mini enduro bike yada 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 but oftentimes i felt that you ride on these bikes and it has one of the attributes so it has it maybe it has the geometry ish or maybe it has the damping ish but that managed to incorporate both and for me it was my version of a cross-country bike mm-hmm. i thought it was absolutely amazing yeah exactly and i think that's for a lot of us that's kind of a cool thing you can have that like you can kind of have it all you can have that light bike that you can do um you can go fast and feel really fast but then you can still go down hard trails and be comfortable which is sweet so yeah uh, there's a lot of cool options out there and i think like you said the element that was definitely a popular bike at this race and it makes a ton of sense because you could adapt it to be geared towards some of the gnarlier trails but it's still nice and light pedals decent so um yeah
I mean, I think you and I, we agree on most things in terms of bike design. I think maybe we do have the running joke, but I think about the weight thing, we're maybe a little bit off. I think that bikes, I don't know. I, I think I do it to slightly be um, antagonistic, but I also do genuinely believe when it comes to enduro and trail bikes. Um, in terms of product failure, though, I think I, I don't know. I worry that sometimes I'm a bit too lenient on stuff. I'm like, oh, it happens. I, I, I don't know why. I, how, how do you feel? Like, do you think, for instance, a carbon rim is ever okay for it to break? Do you think that frames ever are within, like, you know, is acceptable to crack? If, if you read a bike and it had a crack where it wasn't a catastrophic fa- failure, but it cracked, say, around the head tube and be a warranty return, what would be your, what would be the line you would take? Yeah, I mean, like in my mind, yeah, I don't want bikes to break, and I know, but I also do know that it pretty much everything can break. Um, but so it's like, yeah, I just try to be fair about it. Basically, it depends how it broke or what kind of issue it seems like. And definitely, if if the bike hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary and it just broke, like that's definitely an issue. And we've seen recalls and things because of that. So, um, yeah, I guess I don't I don't expect anything to last forever. But I do think that when things come with really strong claims or a high price tag that is supposed to make them better than everything else, I'm definitely more critical. Um, you know, if a, I don't know, a $50 wheel set doesn't hold up, I'm like, all right, well, that's kind of to be expected maybe. But if a $3,000 wheel set, you know, breaks going off a curb, I'm definitely gonna be more um, judgmental against it or try to hold it. I just hold it to a different standard because of how it's, how the claims kind of depends how the company presents it basically. Yes. So I just try to be fair in that regard. Um, but I don't go into anything thinking that it's not breakable and, you know, like I'm not, I'm never yes, like, definitely. Oh, it broke. How could that ever happen? It was it's like, no, obviously these are just normal, normal materials. There's no like magical unbreakable space age thing that, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and what are brands maybe, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but what are some brands, be it components or frames that you think are kind of are doing a good job at the moment? You, you, you look at with eagerness, like, I know. I think that it kind of goes in in ups and downs, peaks and troughs. Where some brands are really just getting it right at a certain mm-hmm. time. What brands have you maybe bikes you've ridden recently or products where you thought, you know what, this brand their attitudes are about bang on for what modern mountain biking is. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Santa Cruz is doing a really good job, and and it's a tricky one because their bikes are very expensive, and they also get a. I think there is almost like a perception because in some parts of the world you just have a lot of really rich people riding santa cruises and it almost like skews the fact that the bikes are actually really well made um servicing is really easy and i think they've got their geometry set up is dialed um and even their suspension tunes like they've got just have a good crew over there that are working on making good mountain bikes so um i definitely can respect what they're doing in that regard um see what other brands are doing some good stuff i think before we go on to another one yeah do you think though that santa cruz have managed to bring it out of the weeds a bit because I think roundabout when we went on those 650B bikes, there were a couple of brands that got it really right. And there's some brands like that first generation Bronson, I don't think was a particularly good bike. They tended to be quite small. Then even that first generation Nomad again. And it feels like they kind of, they weren't necessarily pulling in any particular direction. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's not fair. Maybe they were, some elements were progressive, but there were some elements in terms of sizing that were still quite conservative. And then it feels like, maybe since 2017 maybe since that mega tower came out mm-hmm. they suddenly started yeah really changing things up yeah i think that's fair because they were kind of it felt like they were taking their time and sort of like figuring things out and not just jumping headlong into it which probably cost them a few um iterations that weren't as good as they could have been i guess because they did wait but i think now they've kind of settled into a nice good spot um yeah 
And what do you think of brands, for instance, we think of, you know, someone like Santa Cruz, uh, and there are, there are other brands as well, but like companies like Pond Holdings and this coming in, big, big companies owning multiple bike brands. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something that as consumers we need to be concerned about? Because if you look at the comment section, it seems that people are concerned, but I don't know if that's just a vocal minority or not. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. I don't know if I, as a consumer, if I'd worry that much about it. I think as a consumer, I'd want to make sure that I had a company that offers good warranty support that you can actually talk to someone um, if you had issues and just kind of backs up their product. And I think you're getting that with them. But um, I don't know. I also like some of the smaller companies out there too that seem to be like even just the, um, not garage operations, like almost garage operations. I like to see that stuff happening too. Like whether it's Nico Mullally working with Frank the Welder to get his kind of frameworks project going or Contra bikes. Or I like to, I like knowing that that's still happening too. Like obviously these bigger, huge corporations with millions and millions of dollars, they're making some great bikes. But then it's cool to see that the idea that you can go in your garage, weld something up and test it isn't, that's not going away either. And even like, you know, Brian will listen now if I say 3D printing, but I think that aspect and think people doing different, um, things with you know modern technology i think that's super interesting as well so um yeah lots of cool stuff out there no for sure and and what some of the other brands then you know maybe frame santa cruz are doing things really well i think you know i think also they've got in terms of a brand's relationship to a race team and how to cultivate it to its maximum they've got it dialed Mm -hmm. because there are some like you know think how much money canyon put in their race team and honestly it doesn't really bleed through you yeah. think about, you know, so many other brands, like, especially in the cross-country scene, like, these brands have massive presences in the World Cup circuit, and you don't really necessarily have a strong association where, I think, similar to maybe Ferrari, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, it's, yeah. it's almost ubiquitous. Um, but what other brands, I think, do you, do you kind of hold in high regard at the moment, or think, I think are moving in the right direction? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, let's see, I'm trying to think who, just got to go through my mental Rolodex of all, like, the past bikes I've been riding recently. Um I mean that Trek. Like I think the new newer Treks are better than they've been. Like in the past, Treks have always kind of been like their suspension tunes felt a little bit light, like too soft. It was almost kind of catered to a more cruisy style of riding, and they've kind of adjusted their kinematics a bit. And the new Treks feel like they pedal better than they have in the past. They can handle bigger hits better. Um, so I think that I think Treks going in a really good direction. Like we gave that Fuel X the bike of the year last year because it is one of oh, those. Oh yeah, true. Like that's a good bike. You mentioned that Top Fuel. So I think that they've seems like they sort of turned a corner and they're kind of going in a good place. Um, it's been kind of... Trek of... It's interesting to see Trek, sorry to interrupt, get into this um, on that session, go in for the idler thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I don't, I'm sorry to just pull, pull you one way or another, yeah. but there are certain elements of the bike bike industry that are cyclical. Do you think the idler will stick around for a little while or do you think it's sort of a flash in the pan? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think it'll probably be here in the next five years maybe, but then whether sticks around or someone else creates a new mm-hmm. thing it's kind of it, yeah like you said it is cyclical there's no, no denying that like the way the either equipped kind of high pivot or mid pivot bike feels when you're hitting rough stuff is pretty amazing like it's I, I like how it feels um i've written a bunch of them but you also don't necessarily need that either i don't think it's a it's not like a here's this bike it's got an either it's magic this is what you need it's better than everything and that's not the case so um yeah i'll be curious i'm curious to see where where that goes um yeah, I, I think also it, it could be just treading water until the gearbox thing comes about. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully they're good at treading <laughs> water. Happens. Yeah, they got strong arms because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, gearboxes um, are interesting, but I just don't think that we're still not close. It's been so many years, so 
Yeah. It has been so many years, but also it seems that to hmm, it feels like you know you myself the, the colleagues we have at Pinkbike we're quite pragmatic. Like if they make a great bike with a gearbox, we'll totally be in for it. Yep. But we're not necessarily calling out for it. I think especially with I know that there's sort of a hmm, the big the two big brands in drivetrains are sort of misstepped to one another at the moment. SRAM seems to be doing the really high end stuff really well. Um, and Shimano seems to, I've got that link loud and test. I think they're doing, going to do that, that cues thing is, should be pretty good. And then I've got XD link loud, which, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But between the two of them, we've actually got drivetrains pretty well covered Yeah, from entry level all the way to the super high end, right? Exactly. And they work well, you know, like there's not, derailers are stronger than they've been for the most part. There's still things you can make a better derailleur for sure. And you can make things work better, but overall, like I don't feel like I'm ripping derailers off ever these days, you know, or, or even needing to adjust shifting very often. So I think that that makes there be even less uh, motivation, I think, to make a gearbox because no matter what, at the end of the day, a gearbox does, it may be less maintenance, but when you do need to maintain it, it's not like something you can really do at home. I don't know if you've ever pulled apart like a roll off hub or you're seeing the amount of mm-hmm. tiny gears and tiny parts in there. So it needs to be, you know, well-made in order for it to work. Um, yeah. I think the design, um, and please get in the comments because I know I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something like the design of the planetary gear system. Even he didn't understand how he was getting the outputs he was getting because it was that complicated. I, I believe it. He yeah. knew that it worked, but he didn't understand the maths. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and what, you know, just, just to kind of, kind of begin to conclude, Pink Bike, I think we have some great voices where we cover uh, some different areas quite well. However, we can't be everything to everyone. It, just, it doesn't work like that. What are the, what other sites or brands or journalists do you look up to and you think, actually, you know what? They're doing a real solid job. Yeah. Um, I mean, I look at all the sites every day just because just like to scroll and see what's up, you know? So I go to Vital, I go to NSMB, I go to Bike Rumor, Bike Radar. Sometimes I'll check Enduro MTB. Um, those are kind of the big ones. Um, and you, it sounds like you're still very much in the written world. You're not. I can't imagine you're yeah. consuming my excellent videos on how to straighten a rotor. No, I, I can't say there's not a, there's not a ton of uh, like... <laughs> mountain bike like um besides you know besides edits or video like riding videos on youtube that i watch i don't really follow any of the the bike review channels i think there are some i mean there are definitely some they're doing a good job out there and i think it's another space that people can have a voice and it it is kind of cool that it's you know if you if people if you're expressing your opinions in a coherent enough way you'll gain a following on youtube which is good i think if you're as long as you can back up what you're doing i mean at the end of the day the reviews are just opinions so if you find someone that whose opinion or riding style or anything kind of aligns with yours, you might as well see what they have to say. So, um, yeah, there are some YouTubers I think that are doing a good job off the top of my head though. I just don't have a ton. I mean like Seth bike hacks, it's a little different, but like, it's great what Seth has done. It's really cool to see. Like, I think he's, he's getting the audience. That's more your, um, kind of average, even somebody that's not into mountain bikes. I think people, non mountain bikers watch Seth bike hacks just because of, he does some interesting things and he's kind of figured out YouTube, which is cool. Which is super cool. I mean, I think, um, yeah, well, he, he's doing great. And I think that, I don't know, I'm pretty, hmm. I just want everyone, to, I kind of want everyone to do well, to be honest with you. I'm yeah. not, personally, I don't really have an us and them. I think the better educated, the more informed the audience is, the better it is for everyone. Yeah. And the more people, you know, I don't know, I think it sounds lame, but I think, I believe the word is cross-pollinates. I think it cross-pollinates with each other really well. So Yeah, and I think I'm glad to see that it started, it's sort of, sorry, 
it's sort of toned down a bit as far as the over the top YouTube channel thing. Like we mm-hmm. almost had to be a fake person in order to be a YouTube personality. Like everyone is yes. trying to be a Sam Pilgrim. Like well, there's only one Sam Pilgrim in the world. Like he's doing great stuff. I love what he does. He's doing the silliest, like anyone that's going to go jump a recumbent or ride a penny farthing <laughs> or whatever, like he should be the guy and it's, it's great, but like you don't need 20 of those channels. So I think it's important for people to kind of like find their, their little niche and go with it and don't try to be something you're not. So yeah, just, yes. I can, fakeness is really visible. You can tell when someone's fake or like, I don't know, some of that stuff just makes me cringe. So I think people that have more, um, yeah, genuine motivation to do what they're doing and definitely respect them more. So yeah. Amazing. And I think, um, that's probably a really good place to leave it. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. Telling me about, about, you know, why you love long chain stays and why they're here to stay (laughs) really appreciate it Kaz and uh, thanks to all the listeners for listening and we'll catch you next time